I met Pardeep Kalika in October of 2012, and this was a couple months after August 5th, 2012, when a white nationalist skinhead named Wade Page, who was a member of Hammerskin Nation, mm-hmm. which is the group that I had helped to found in the late 80s, walked into the Sikh Temple of Wisconsin and started murdering people. And he ended up killing uh, Prakash Singh, Ranjit Singh, Sita Singh, Suvig Singh Katra, Paramjit Kaur, and Pardeep's father, Satwan Singh Kalika. Born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Arnold Michaelis grew up in a caring, loving family. But a combination of being told that he could achieve anything while witnessing his artistic mother suffering from dealing with her husband's alcoholism drove him to violence and vandalism at school, and by the age of 17, he'd become deeply involved in the white power movement and a founding member of what became the largest neo-Nazi skinhead organisation in the world. For years, he followed the path of violence until he was confronted at a McDonald's checkout by an elderly African-American lady with kindness and a smile pointing at his swastika tattoo saying, that's not you. You're better than that. That moment started his path to redemption. This is a two-parter. In part one, Arno recounts his early years and descent into violence, and how a mass killing at a Sikh temple in 2012 led him to form a bond with Pardeep Singh Kalika, whose father was murdered in the temple by a white supremacist gunman in a Milwaukee suburb. The gunman who killed Pardeep's dad and five others was a member of the same white power group that Arno had formed years earlier. In part two, we cover Arno's path away from extremism, his recent book with Pardeep Singh Kalika, The Gift of Our Wounds, the work he is doing to promote the practice of peace, travelling, speaking and working with all kinds of reformed extremists to confront hateful ideologies through storytelling, fearless creativity and compassion. I hope you're inspired by the kindness, gratitude and compassion of Arno Michaelis. Arno, welcome to the Impossible Network podcast. Uh, It's my pleasure, Mark. Excited to be here. We're very excited to have you as a guest. So first of all, I think we have to give a big shout out to the wonderful Stephen Hecht, who recommended that we interview you. Uh, Stephen, the co-founder of Million Peacemakers. So all credit to Stephen. Uh, Appreciate Stephen and everything he does. Yeah, he's a great man. So Arna, we always start our interviews by delving into upbringing. Before we get into discussing the journey you went on, which is fascinating from being a white supremacist to becoming what you call yourself now as a weaver of social fabric, which I love, and storyteller, a writer, a published author with a new book out right now called um, The Gift of Our Wounds, co-written with Pardeep, is it Kalika? It is, yeah. Yeah, with Pardeep Kalika. I'm sure we'll get on and talk about that, that story. And also a filmmaker as well. So... It's quite a, a transformative journey that you've been on. Can you take us back to where you were born? I believe it was Milwaukee, Wisconsin, to an insurance salesman father and a very hardworking mother, by, what, by all accounts. <laughs> a hardworking artist mother, actually. Ah, right. Okay. Yeah. Born in Milwaukee, so Wisconsin. Cre- creativity is in the DNA. It is. Yeah, absolutely. My mom is just one of the most amazing artists I've ever witness the output of and she's very prolific even at uh, her age now. So I was born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. At the time I was born my parents owned a bar that actually used to be a speakeasy back in prohibition days and it was creatively entitled the speakeasy and we lived there for a year and then my parents bought a house in a suburb of Milwaukee called Mequon about 15 minutes north And it was an old, boring, 
kind of tract house, but my mother, in addition to being an artist, just kind of sat down at a drafting table and drafted the architectural plans for this really beautiful addition on the back of the house, which had a two-story peaked A-frame, full picture window looking out into the back. And my dad and his cousin built it. Hmm. So, and I, I still live in that house today, and it, it never escapes me how beautiful my mother's vision is, and that the fact that my dad like brought it to life was, was pretty awesome as well. That's incredible. Were they both born and bred in Wisconsin? Uh, yeah, both my mom and dad were born in Milwaukee. My mom's side of the family, going back uh, to Norway, Poland, and France, mm-hmm. and my dad's side is all all Prussia. Ah, yeah, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> that's where Arno comes yeah. from, and I'm, I'm Arno the <laughs> Fourth. Wow, that's great. So, growing up in that environment, I've I've heard you say that you were you were praised, loved, supported. It's not the upbringing that would normally lead someone down the path that you went. Yeah. When I was doing research for my first book, My Life After Hate, I had to talk to a bunch of people who were there in the the Nazi skinhead days with me just to corroborate stuff because everything was so hazy. I, I drank so profusely. And while I was interviewing people, I just started asking a set of common questions mm-hmm. about their, their upbringing and what got them into it. And most of them had the kinds of stories where you would be like, oh, I'm not surprised that guy became a Nazi skinhead. Mm-hmm. But you're right. My story is, is a bit of an outlier. I, I grew up in a nice house in a nice neighborhood. I never went hungry. I never took a beating. My parents were together. They both loved me very, very much. And that was... Uh, plain to me growing up. I knew that my parents loved me, but it was really a combination of my personality type. Mm-hmm. And so there, there is nature and nurture in, in both cases. There's a bit of urban mythology about my childhood. My dad is an amazing storyteller. I think that's where I get my love for story from. And he uh, works very freely with hyperbole. Mm-hmm. So he'll be like, yeah, when Ernie was... Uh, Eight months old, we found him 90 feet up in a tree in the backyard, and we had to get the fire department to come get him. And I, I was probably two and, like, 10 feet up mm. in the tree. <laughs> but it, it were all based on truth. My, my mom is also a great storyteller. doesn't tend to exaggerate as much. Said she woke up one morning to find me, and this is, like, you know, 10, 11 months old, find me standing in the middle of our gas stove with all four burners going, mm. trying to get into the cabinet above the stove where all the poison was kept. So you're a curious young kid, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. And, well, and, and my parents actually took me to the pediatrician and they're like, what, what's wrong with this kid? Uh-huh. Like, he's just insane. And the pediatrician was like, he's, he does that because he's a gifted genius. Mm-hmm. So just let him be gifted. Let him explore. Let him... Do you think it would have been called a- ADHD these days? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, it, and I think it's it's tragic that a lot of kids like me nowadays are just like medicated into oblivion mm-hmm. right off the bat. And there's a time and a place for mental health meds, mm-hmm. but I, I think they are very much overprescribed, especially for, for children. Mm-hmm. But my pediatrician was not of that school, and he <laughs> it may have been a little too far the other way. And, and my parents, at his advice, just kind of let me run amok as a kid. Because I heard you on a, I think it was on a podcast called The Theory of Enchantment. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I, Chloe. Gr- great one, great yeah. interview. Chloe Valdery is a yeah, fantastic. brilliant person. But I heard you, I'll just quote what I think you said on that. 
where you said, regardless of the praise you were given, you were suffering and you defined yourself as an anti-hero. Where did that self-image come from? Because being allowed to run amok, run amok, that's the term, run, <laughs> run wild. Run amok. Uh, yeah, and do as you wished, doesn't necessarily align with that, that self-image and that sense of suffering. Wh- where did, do you mind me asking where that came from? Have, no, you, have not, you reflected on that? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, I, my career nowadays is like basically staked in in the states here. We say Monday morning quarterbacking. So there, there's a Sunday football game, ah, right? And on Monday morning, everybody's like, "Well, they should have done this. They should have done that." <laughs> so that's where the phrase comes from. And in my case, it's kind of Monday morning psychoanalysis. Like <laughs> looking back at my my childhood, going, "Oh, where did I go wrong? Where did where did that bad turn happen?" And and I. After telling this story and really delving into it from all sorts of angles over and over and over again, I think what was happening as a kid was that all, as all this phrase was being heaped upon me by my parents, by my teachers, by my principal, by all my extended family, he's so wonderful, he's so gifted, he's he could do anything. And, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but considering my father's alcoholism, and the pressure it put on my mother and the damage it did to their relationship, I, my mother was suffering hmm. throughout my childhood. And, and that was probably contributing to your anger. It, you know, yeah, it was plain as day hmm. to me, and it, and it hurt. And rather than be a good kid and be like, hey, Mom, I love you. How can I help? Hmm. I just started to distance myself from her and from my dad, who loved me very much. Hmm. It, despite the disease he has, He he's always doing the best he can. And, and I think... Underneath, I was thinking to myself, like, I'm not wonderful. Mm -hmm. I'm horrible. And if you don't believe I'm horrible, watch what I'm going to do to this kid. Mm -hmm. Watch what I'm going to do to this school. Hmm. It's interesting. I I think it was Joshua Spodek. We were interviewing another guest, a fascinating man, real Renaissance character. And on followed up listening to one of his podcasts recently, and he was talking about development, child development, and heaping praise on children. It's what a lot of parents have been doing for the last 20-odd years. Mm. But the reality is we should be saying to them, that's great, but next time you should be thinking about this. <laughs> right. Next time, think about maybe going further. So you, they always feel that they're on a journey, Right. that they aren't just God's gift. And I think it's a mistake that a, a generation have made. And, you know, I'm, I'm a parent, and I, I know I did that with my daughter. And if right. she's listening to this, she'll be like, Dad! <laughs> but anyway, that... But it's, My daughter would say the same thing. So it's really interesting that you acknowledge that that was actually happening. That praise was driving the sort of the anger and, and the frustration. Going from just being angry and violent and a bully at school is different to then moving into a worldview that is quite radical. Where did that sort of change in worldview begin and what drove it? I, I was really... The big motivator for it was that it, it can I say it pissed people off? Yeah, yeah, sure, <laughs> yeah. It, it pissed people off. Uh-huh. I, my, my habit of lashing out was always like, how can I repulse civil society to the greatest degree possible? Mm-hmm. And it, when I was 14, I got into punk rock, which I still love. I don't want to make it sound like punk is some kind of gateway drug to become a white power skinhead. Oh, I love punk as well. Yeah, yeah right Take on. me back. I'm, I'm yeah, 70s yeah. punk. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. I, and I got in in like the mid-late 80s. But to me, punk was just about breaking things. 
Mm -hmm. and and about repulsing people. To be honest, it was never about constructive dialogue. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, anarchy in the UK? Hmm, Let's see. (laughs) The irony of God save the Queen. Uh, Right, right. (laughs) Well, it's interesting. And I I was definitely more like the Sex Pistols kind of punk rocker. I, you know, idolized Sid Vicious. How how disgusting, how filthy, how drunk, how wild could I be? That that was always the question that was driving everything I was doing. But in, in some some role model. Oh yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but fingers crossed, I'll yeah. die of a heroin overdose in a hotel in New York somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it could Nancy in the bathtub at the um, Chelsea Hotel. Right. Yeah, not far from here. It it was it, in the late '80s. There was a, kind of a, and I think it was probably when this started. There was a genre of punk called peace punks. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. And they they were very like activist minded. They're confused. <laughs> yeah. Right. That's what I felt. Yeah. The, and need, need a little correction. Exactly. Yeah, I, I, the, the peace punks would be like, don't drink Coors beer. They don't hire black people. And, like, I didn't care one way or another mm. who Coors did or did not hire, but I hated the peace punks. Yeah. To me, they were like, punk was about not caring. Mm-hmm. Not, it's not about boycotting things. Mm-hmm. And so, to me, Coors was like a premium beer. I was all about quantity, not quality. It's, but I would spend an extra dollar or two to get a 12-pack of Coors beer and a Coors hat mm-hmm. to just, like, <laughs> stick You're it in the face. you making a statement. Exactly. Yeah. And, I, and I'd be working on my second 12-pack of it. By the time the Peace Punks are all following me in the, or passing by me into the punk show and sneering and putting their nose up. And I, I was just like, yeah, mission accomplished. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's who I was when I heard White Power Skinhead music. And, mm-hmm. and that, that I'm just like, oh, if you think Coors pisses people off, if you think Mohawks piss people mm-hmm. off, try the swastika. Because I, just from my, to get the timeline correct, I've heard you say that you also loved breakdancing and hip hop as yeah. well. Was that before <laughs> the punk or was it after? That was sixth and seventh grade. Because that could have taken you down a very different route. It absolutely could have. I and I, I loved it. I, I saw Grandmaster Flash and the Furious <sighs> Five live. I Wonderful. Saw Run DMC on their first tour, New Edition. Uh, and, and I was like at the the roller rink every weekend. One of two or three white kids there. And I loved hip hop. I loved break dancing. I I wished I was black. Mm-hmm. I thought it was not cool to be a white kid and. I hung out with, like, the five black kids that went to my school, and I think what turned me off to that is once it started getting trendy. Mm. Getting trendy? Yeah. Oh, right. Okay, so popularity. You were still, at this point, trying to make a statement to the world about your, through your anger? Yeah, I want to, I want to be ahead of the trend. Uh Like, anytime something catches on, like, then I want nothing to do with it. And, Ah. And as I grew older... Hip hop started to get really popular with white kids, and by the time I was 16, now it was just another point of hatred to me. All oh, these white kids listening to black people music, rah, rah, rah. and so I, I, I kind of left it all behind, turned my back on it, like I turned my back on all kinds of things that I loved. And it was when I got out, one of the first things I did was going right back to hip hop, namely the Beastie Boys. Huh. <laughs> Good old Brooklyn band. That's right. Okay. As you're talking, I'm getting a sense that although this was your home, you lived there all your life, it sounds like you were a little bit of an outsider or desired to be an outsider. Was that active or was it just the, the way you were, your character? 
I think that's a great assessment. It was certainly active. I, it wasn't conscious, though. Uh-huh. I, and, and all these things I'm saying, like I was doing this, I was doing that, I was thinking this or that, I don't know that I was aware I was thinking of these uh-huh. things at the time. I'm a, I'm a lucky guy. I've been lucky my entire life. And as a kid, I could really like write my own ticket. If I want to hang out with the popular kids, I'll hang out with the popular mm-hmm. kids. If I want to hang out with the jocks, I'll hang out with the jocks. If I want to hang out with the nerds, I'll hang out with them. Like I, I could span in, into any clique that I wanted to. And I think anytime I started getting too comfortable, I, I'd move on. Uh-huh. That's been a, a theme of my life that continues to today is that just I'm constant motion is... Well, I forget what the movie was called. Where the bus is going, and if it drops below a certain speed, it's going to blow up. Oh, speed. Yeah, yeah, speed. Yeah, Go figure. Yeah. I, my, my whole life, I always felt like I have to be in constant motion. If I, if I stay hmm. in one place too long, so it just... It, it's a great attitude to have, though. Yeah. Well, I, I, it's a positive attitude. I think so as hmm. well. Yeah, for sure. I, I've been on the road eight months this year, and, and I love it. I literally travel around the world, I think six or seven different countries all over the States, and... As a kid, too, I even as a very little kid, my parents would, uh, if they didn't lock the door, I'd open it and just bolt out of the house, mm-hmm. and then they'd lock it, and I'd figure out how to unlock it and bolt, and then they'd put a hook at the top, and I'd build a teetering mound of high chairs and phone books and scale it and pop, it, pop the hook and then bolt. As a kid gr- growing up, I was like that in, in social circles. Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't want to spend too much time in any, any one place. Can I read a quote from a Wall Street Journal article? Sure. did. Because I'd like to delve into why you gravitated to the self-image. Since I can remember, I'm quoting now, since I can remember, I've been fascinated with the idea of being a warrior. I learned to read early and would sit in library poring over books of Greek and Norse myths, gravitating to the parts about monsters and violence. In middle school, I played Dungeons and Dragons, fancying myself as an unstoppable fighter who made his own rules. Art was equally as fascinating as violence, and the two combined in my drawings of battle scenes from ancient Vikings cracking skulls and spaceships blowing each other to bits. I mean, that's quite a, a clear identity you were striving for. Yeah. What age was this this occurring? I think that's a nature-nurture thing as well. I remember you mentioned the, sort of the, the Viking, the Norse background from your mother's side. Yeah, I, I, my mom's half Norwegian, and my Prussian side is all Northern Europe as well. But my dad's always been really fascinated with military stuff. And when I was a little kid, that back when there were you know three channels to watch, or three or four, uh, a show my father watched constantly was called World at War. Oh, yeah, that was, yeah I know that. Yeah, exactly. great, wonderful show. Oh, of course, yeah. yeah. It's just constant, like, black and white news rules of World War II stuff. And, like, I didn't really care which side or, or I, one side or another. I just want the shooting and mm. the guns and the stuff blowing up. And I I just, I don't know if it, I, I'm sure I was picking up a bit of my dad's, mm. like, fascination with it. But I, I also feel like there was something innate that just made that attractive to me. And my, my father is, uh, he's an amazing guy. And he's, he's incredibly incredibly smart Mm -hmm. he's always been really fascinated by eastern philosophy and religion and he's he's a very firm believer in reincarnation he just Mm -hmm. talks about it like it's that's yeah it's a fact and according to my dad he was taking me to the toy store where i was picking out a model um as a reward for not wetting the bed for a week or whatever and i i just walked into this toy store and made a beeline for the model of the Panzer Super Tiger tank. And I looked at the tank and I said, 1944. 
And I remember the tank, and I remember saying 1944. That's all I remember. Mm -hmm. But according to my dad, I went on to describe in detail how I was an, a Waffen-SS Panzer tank commander who died in that tank in the Battle of the Bulge. Wow. And, and if you carry that out, it is, you know, there's this very poetic thing. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I, I was a Nazi officer who died in battle in World War II, and then here I am reborn as Arno R. Michaelis IV. Like, have, this is the lesson I need mm -hmm. to learn. I obviously didn't learn it in my last life, so now here I'm hopefully learning it in this life. To me, that's like, it's an interesting story. Mm -hmm. I, I don't, like, define myself by it. It's, no, but it, it's an interesting narrative. Yeah, yeah, if exactly. It, if it had been playing around in your head and sort right. of driving that self-image and, 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 and fueling your... yeah. I think that that's what contributed to everything in that quote with mm -hmm. the, the fascination with mythology. And again, it wasn't just like any myth. If it was a myth without fighting or monsters or violence <laughs> of some kind, I'm muster. not interested. No, no. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, then. Well, let's move on from that. You had, as you said, you had these friends from multiple ethnic backgrounds. You could choose any group. You then discovered punk that became essentially your pathway to, let's say, anti-purpose. Right. And you created your, your first band, I believe, Stolen Youth? Yeah, when you go to college, your youth is stolen. So what did you go to? Just This is interesting. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> a slight divergence here. You look back at some of the great names, the creative names of punk bands from yeah. the, 80, the 70s and 80s. And right. I mean, it was a great one, a British one. I don't know if you knew them, the Anti-Nowhere League. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, just some great names. If you go through the sort of the, the Wikipedia page of those, <laughs> fantastic. Um, yeah, that nihilism sort of driving forth the youth of a generation. Where was going with this? Pathway to anti-purpose. Anti yeah, First stolen, band, youth. stolen youth. Yeah. yeah, so what did you go? You were, I think is you were, bright, intelligent, gifted, clearly an articulate individual. You went to college to do what? My first stint at college, I think, was in 1990, and it was to uh, Milwaukee Area Technical College. And I, I, I went for a landscape design degree. But did you have any ambitions apart from being this nihilistic punk? No, not really. Wise, did you have a vision of the future of no, settling down and? No, I, I. In fact, that was a lot. Big part of my identity was not having a vision yeah, of the future. Uh -huh. I started getting horrible homemade punk rocker tattoos when I was fourteen, and immediately you get a tattoo at that age, and any adult is, good, especially in the late eighties, they're gonna yeah, be like totally offensive. How's that gonna look when you're eighty? And I'm like, I'm not gonna live till I'm eighty. I'm not going to live till I'm 21. Like, I was just, I, I just wallowed in that. I, I think I did really feel that way. I did not give thought to my future whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So talk to us about that journey that started with punk and led you into the heart of the white supremacist movement. Well, it was it, the swastika was it was attractive to me because it repulsed people like nothing else. And when I first heard "Screwdrivers Hail the New Dawn," the hair on the back of my neck stood up, and I was like, "Oh, <laughs> where has this been all my life?" And right away, the first thing I'm thinking is like, "This will really piss off the peace punks. Mm -hmm. Like this this will be that times a million. And so I was uh, really fascinated with that. Plus, it really spoke to this warrior persona that I had held my whole life. Here's Scrooter. I say, yes, you are a warrior. You're a warrior for your people, the white race, which is in danger of extinction at the hands of this shadowy Jewish conspiracy to kill all the white people on the planet Earth that's been going on for thousands of years. And 
So now all the Dungeons and Dragons modules that I had traversed that were all like, this was real. Mm -hmm. Just as a matter of interest, this is before, obviously, the internet um, emerged yeah. for the main, in the mainstream. Where did that narrative come from? Because you don't exactly find that sitting on the shelves of local libraries. And right. presumably you weren't hanging out with sort of groups in Milwaukee at the time. Were you discovering this through books and your own research? Or was there... I, well, I think another part of the big appeal to me was was that I saw the status quo of the late 1980s mm. as one of multiculturalism. Uh -huh. This was when, as mentioned, like white kids are starting to listen to Public Enemy and NWA mm -hmm. and MTV is just becoming big. And MTV is this very multicultural, multiracial effort. And United Colors of Benetton billboards are up everywhere. Of course, with this yeah. spectrum of these beautiful models with all different complexions. And so I, I saw that as very much like this is what society is about. And because this is what society is about, I'm going to be about the opposite. Rejection. Again, this, this you standing as an outsider wanting to create exactly. anger and, 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 and approbation. This, this required like a willful historical myopia. Mm -hmm. Obviously, anybody who has the, the slightest grasp of U.S. and world history understands that white supremacy is actually the status quo, and it mm -hmm. still yeah. is in, in far too many ways. If somebody could have convinced me of that <laughs> at that at age, yeah. I, I may have become an Antifa. Mm -hmm. It wasn't necessarily that I had this like particular drive to white nationalism that needed to be met. I was just like looking for the best way to piss people off. Mm -hmm. And you found it. Yeah, it certainly worked in that regard. It was something where, and this is how we recruited too, it was, it was like you could blame everything wrong with your life on Jews. Mm -hmm. It's all Jews' fault. And then, of course, the, the people of color that, that the Jews brought here and mm -hmm. the Jews propagated around the world. When you blame your problems on other people, so you don't have to face the hard work yourself mm -hmm. to solve those problems. It's just the way of being lazy and irresponsible, but you can justify it with this ideology. And so the further you go into this ideology, like the less actual work you have to do. Which is alive and well <clears throat> in every extremist group today, whether, oh, absolutely. whether, whether it be in ISIS um, or be on the far right or far left. Absolutely. I, I work, I've been working in counterviolent extremism internationally for about a decade now, and I, some of my dearest friends are former jihadis. Mm -hmm. Mubin Sheikh comes to mind right away, a guy from Toronto, left uh, the jihadi movement and became an undercover operative for the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and foiled a terror plot in Toronto that wow. would have rivaled 9-11. But as Mubin and I uh, hang out and talk and I'd say, yeah, we blamed everything on Jews, and he'd be like, yeah, we did too. The, the parallels between uh, violent Islamism and white nationalism are just plain as day to me. Mm almost down to the entire ideology, and, and especially with the return narrative. Uh -huh. The white nationalism, we're going to return to this wonderful point in history when everything was white. And as, as the brilliant Chloe Valdery pointed out, she was like, when was that? Yeah, exactly, yeah. And if it was, like, the Dark Ages? Like, <laughs> how, exactly. how, how, what did all this wonderful all-white society look like? You're burning each other at the stake? And I know, and it's great. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm halfway through the book, uh, the Stephen Pinker book, uh, Better Angels of Our Nature. Oh, I'm looking forward to reading oh, it. Oh, my actually. goodness. Yeah. Oh, you need a long flight. Yeah. Um, but you look back in time and go, I'm sorry, we're living in the best time 
in history. Right. <laughs> Regardless. <laughs> right. If you just have to read that book and you think, oh, yeah, the times are great. Now, they might have been great, I think, as she said in there, for maybe white middle class people in America or in Scotland. Right. But anyone else that wasn't in that priv- privileged group back in the day, whether it be the 70s, the 60s, the 20s or the 18th century, 19th century, forget it. It right. was tough. It was brutal. Oh, yeah. And I think we, we need a bit of a wake-up call um, for people. This generation should be, should be grateful of the, the quality of life that we have, regardless of the issues we've got right now with the environment, which are, is a different issue altogether. But, yeah, that anger is interesting. just made me think, as you were talking about that, everyone blaming the Jews. I wonder, we've, we've never had a, um, a Hasidic Jew on the show. And I wonder what, if the Jews, if there's extremists in the Jewish um, community that hate anyone or blame anyone oh yeah no there absolutely absolutely is i have a, a dear hasidic friend uh, mark Erlbaum, who's in philly he started a, a great group called the uh common party which is really just like let's find things we agree on and mm-hmm. go from there but i i some of my earliest work in counterviolent extremism it began in dublin ireland in 2011 at an event that google ideas now jigsaw put together along with the council on foreign relations and the tribeca film festival and there i met formers as in former violent extremists mm-hmm. of every stripe possible one of whom was a former militant israeli settler mm-hmm. who at that time and to this day nakam patenik is which i'm probably butchering the hebrew pronunciation sorry nakam but i i remember talking to him through a translator because he only spoke Hebrew, but his his shift and, and hearing about how his, what his my, what mindset was while he was violent again it was like dead on to mine. Mm-hmm. You're, we're, I'm part of this elite in group. We're better than everybody else. We're threatened by everybody else, and we we're at war with everybody else. Mm-hmm. And that's the way it is. And, and if you look at any violent extremist narrative, whether you're talking about Antifa or white nationalists or the Islamists or what have you, that that's it's that same narrative mm-hmm. is as plain as day. Yeah. Okay. What were your parents and siblings saying about this? My parents were in a rough position, and when when you've let a kid run amok for sixteen years. You don't just turn on a dime and be like, okay, now we're going to clamp down. Yeah. <laughs> it, just, it just doesn't work. I, I'm grateful for this, but my parents never spanked me. They never had any kind of corporal punishment, and it, which I agree with. I don't think violence is a way to teach anybody anything, much less a child. But it, like my father, when I was 14, all of a sudden decides he's going to try to be a tough guy with me and like physically stop me from leaving the house. And by this point, I'm bigger than him. Mm. And I'm like, you're not stopping anybody. And I, I threw them out of my way. And uh-huh. my parents had really lost control of me by that age. Mm-hmm. And they were just trying, to, they were in damage control mode. Like, just, well, it's just, how can we keep him from dying? How can we keep him from killing himself? Mm-hmm. That was their, their main focus. And, and they're very focused on it. They, they, they both love me more than anything. But having lost control of me, they were kind of at a loss of what to do. And I, I think, Throughout my involvement in the movement, as we called it, I think they were either not aware or in in a conscious, willful denial Mm -hmm. of how bad I was and what I was doing. When my parents read both of my books, they they were both kind of like, oh my, oh wow, I didn't know, (laughs) I didn't know it was this this bad. (laughs) And and the books are like a wee glimpse of how bad it was. So they... 
didn't really understand the depth of, of where I was. Mm-hmm. And, and I, it is a natural thing, too. As a parent, no parent wants to look at their kid and be like, this kid's bad for the world. Uh-huh. No one wants to admit that. What, you have a brother. I do have a younger brother, Zach. And I, I love Zach dearly. He's, he's an amazing guy. And I I was horrible to him and, and horrible to my parents. Mm-hmm. Poor old Zach, isn't, he's, he's forgiving you. He has, like, as, and, and my parents have as well, as, uh-huh. as only family can. Zach followed me into the skinhead movement. He kind of mm-hmm. dipped his toes in it for maybe a year or so. So Zach's forgiven you. He's, what, what does Zach do? My brother owns an insurance agency in, in Astoria, Oregon, one that he uh, bought from my father, uh-huh. who, and my father bought from the guy he worked for. My dad and brother both live in the Pacific Northwest. Dad's in Astoria proper, and my brother lives in a valley between Astoria and Seaside. Oh, it's nice they, up there. They call it yeah. the Shire. Mm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's something out of um, Lord of the Rings. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's that gorgeous. I mean, it is, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's amazing there. Okay. So can you just explain to us how you came in contact with Pardeep that led you to writing this book? Pardeep reached out to me for a number of reasons. One was that you wanted to try to understand this. Mm-hmm. What could drive someone to just walk into a place of worship and start murdering people that he never met? And he also sought me out because I had done a lot of media after the shooting. I, I went public with my story in 2010. Mm-hmm. And so by 2012, I already had a bit of a platform as like the ex-white nationalist guy. And in all the media I did, I, I was very plain about my urgency to respond to this atrocity. And, and I was also accountable for it, mm-hmm. it which I, I think is really important. And I, to this day, I, it's important to me to own up to the fact that I helped to create the environment that this guy came from mm-hmm. and that, that far too many other terrorists have come from as well. And, and I have to be accountable for that. So is from Pardeep's perspective, I was the only person who was raising his hand and saying, hey, I, I did this, mm-hmm. and how can I help? How can I help repair this harm? And that's what brought us to meet in October of 12. He had sent me an email, and when I read the email, and I was really honored to hear from Pardeep and excited about the chance to connect with him and to, to help him any way I could, but I was also, like, very intimidated, mm-hmm. like, Okay, you it's you easy to do an interview and say this, this, and that, but now you're going to actually connect with this guy whose father was murdered by one of your old guys, mm-hmm. and I felt like there's nothing I could do that'd be enough. Like, what do you say to him? Hey, Amaro, sorry about your dad. Like, I it just nothing, nothing would seem adequate. But I, I wrote back and I said, I'm glad to be in touch, honored to help, I'd love to meet sometime. He wrote back and said that he was kind of at a low point since the shooting. Mm-hmm. He'd forgiven at this point the, the shooter. for. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's, I find it really inspiring, actually, to just examine the journey of forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And I, I have another dear friend, Sharon Risher, who, whose mother, Ethel Lance, was killed by Dylan Roof at oh. Emanuel AME. And Sharon is she she's a pastor, and she was when this atrocity happened. Mm-hmm. And immediately after, Sharon's sister was the one who stood up in in court and said, "I forgive you." And Sharon's like, "What do you think you're doing? How dare you 
And and it took Sharon years to get to the point where she was like, okay. And but she had that same feeling, like I'm a Christian, I'm a pastor, mm-hmm. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I have to forgive this kid right now. Yeah. And and her journey took years. She wrote a brilliant book called For a Time Such as This, Hope and Forgiveness After the Charleston Massacre. I always think of Sharon, but it, Partyip's journey reminds me a lot of that. And in the Sikh faith. Again, it's not an obligation for forgiveness, but forgiveness is a is a holy thing. Mm-hmm. And so, it, as a sick, immediately the, shoot, the shooting happens. Party feels an obligation because of his faith that he has to forgive on the spot, and it took him a, a while as well. And and he's told me that our friendship and us meeting that first night was the beginning of a process for him, where he he can finally today say, "Yes, I, I forgive he's Wade healed. Page." Yeah. And I, one of my favorite things about Pardeep and, and the way he just looks at the world is he says, I, I forgive with vengeance. My vengeance against Wade Page mm-hmm. is that I forgive him. And people hear that again and they're like, what? <laughs> How does that make sense? Part and I, we've done a ton of speaking gigs and we had one where he said that at the Q&A, some guy gets his phone out. He looks up the dictionary de- definition of vengeance like vengeance, punishment for a crime, blah, blah, blah. He's like, you still maintain that forgiveness is vengeance? And party's like, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I can corroborate this. Wade Page or any other white nationalist or an Islamist, what have you, any violent extremist has lost their faith in humanity. Otherwise, they wouldn't act like this and commit these acts. And they want to destroy everybody else's faith in humanity. That's mm-hmm. their probably number one objective if you're going to apply Occam's razor to it. And so... Wade Page wants to destroy Pardeep's faith in humanity. He wants to live in his head the rest of his life. He wants to consume his energy rather than have that energy be directed towards his children or his wife or his widowed mother or his career mm-hmm. or his service to community. And Pardeep's like, no, I'm not giving you any of that. I deny you that, and that's my vengeance. Mm-hmm. And and to <laughs> further carry out this act of vengeance, Pardeep has a great TEDx talk called uh, Monster. And the theme of the talk is that uh, Wade Page was not a monster. He was a human being. And at some point in his life, Wade Page was a beautiful, innocent child as as precious as any other child. Mm-hmm. And something went horribly wrong between that point and August 5th, 2012, to bring Wade Page to commit this atrocity. And and that's how Pardeep looks at it. Mm-hmm. And I, I I believe his, his relationship with me is, has been a part of his journey, and it's, it's certainly been a part of my journey as well. Because I've heard you say that you were suffering from exhaustion of the lies and the ideology and the denial of the culture, of culture generally, and that led you to walking away from the movement. That was 1993, 94? 94, yeah. 94. What happened in the intermediate time between 94 and 2010 when you became a public speaker against and uh, white supremacy? When I made the decision to walk away from the movement, it was the sensation of relief. It was literally a huge weight off of my shoulders. When you adhere to any violent extremist ideology, it, they're all very strict. Mm-hmm. Like, this is good, this is bad. You can do this, you can't do that. Yeah. Again, looking at the, the crossover between Islamist ideology and white nationalism. They're very similar. Just dead on. Mm-hmm. It, and it's to the point where we, we had our own haram. 
in, in Islam, if something's <laughs> unholy, it's Haram. Well, for us, Haram was... Beastie Boys. Yeah, Haram was the Beastie <laughs> Boys. Haram was Seinfeld. Haram was the Green Bay Packers. Haram I was... I understand that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> Watch it now, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> Get, open the door, Bettina. I'm going. <laughs> End of part one. <laughs> That's right. I'm going to go yeah. old school. Yeah. Right <laughs> that, that was all Haram. It mm. was all forbidden. Perhaps, perhaps you could explain to listeners that don't understand the term haram the parallels between that and violent islam and the movement that you were part of i it, uh, haram essentially means sin it it, it would be a, a synonym of sin so in islam and, and this is islam in a broader sense uh there are things that are haram eating pork is haram and it again it just is in christianity there are things this is a sin that's a sin there's a big long list of them but in Islamist groups or jihadi, violent jihadi groups, it, it's hard to even like to put a name on that because mm-hmm. I, I don't want to associate Islam with the violence because Islam, I believe, it is a, it's a beautiful yeah. religion. But the the Islamist groups, like the so-called Islamic State, they take haram to a higher level and and they they appropriate it and corrupt it, and so to them, anything outside of their very narrow thought pattern is haram. Mm-hmm. And the, you went through the exact same thought process as a white nationalist. We just didn't have a name for it, at, at least not one as, as catchy as Haram. Mm-hmm. It, and we would say that's, that's Jewish mind pollution or, you know, that's Jewish propaganda. It, it was always something it, – it you didn't have, like, the catchy one-word name like mm-hmm. Haram. But it was the exact same concept. And so when I left, now it's all – everything goes. And I was kind of back to – that state where I always wanted to be, where it's like, I'm going to do what I want to do. I am free to go anywhere I want, talk to whoever I want, enjoy any kind of media that I want. And being a man of extremes, I went from being a violent white power skinhead to being a raver Mm -hmm. in the span of a couple years. I I spent another seven years in the rave scene, and I noticed right away is when I, the first party I went to was in 96. Mm -hmm. And it was, all the parties had names, and it was called Home. It was on the south side of Chicago in some filthy, dilapidated roller rink. And even then, there were these ravers going, it's, this scene's not like it was in 92. Mm. <laughs> it's like everybody's, every, you have this like jaded elitism yeah. where, and I'm sure today if you go to a party, kids are going to be like, this scene's not like it was in 2010. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like it's, that, that's just kind of a thing that, mm. and, and punk scene does that. Any kind of counterculture, you're going to see that. But the, to me, the, the really beautiful thing about the rave scene, about dance music, it, and I s- still, I'm actually wearing a knee brace on my right knee because I wiped out after uh, dancing until I collapsed in Berlin a couple weeks ago. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm old, though. I can't. Were you there for the, uh, for the Berlin Wall? I was. I was, yeah. I was speaking at uh, a 30th anniversary event of the, the uh-huh. Wall coming down, which was an amazing uh-huh. event. But, uh, of course, I, I don't really go out raging until the work's done. So, but the, the following Saturday, it was funny, a lot of my old like raver homies from the midwest ended up in berlin, berlin which is course. it's the yeah. mecca of techno mm. okay we'll end part one there come back tomorrow for part two if you like the show please subscribe and ideally give us a five-star rating and a review because it helps more people find us just go to itunes spotify or your favorite podcast player to listen and subscribe if you want to learn more 
or have someone you'd like us to interview, just visit theimpossiblenetwork.com or DM us on Instagram at The Impossible Network. This show is an Impossible Network production and is produced by Bettina McKaylee and Elaine Castillo-Keller. But for now, be curious, be creative, and seek out serendipity. See you next time.